The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to ZPod. For those of you who are brand new to our listening audience, because from what I understand, we've gained a little more interest on the Generation Z because of the International Gen Z Conference. So I'm assuming we're going to have some new listeners today. So you need to understand something. It's a pretty simple deal, and that is that the ZPod cast is actually an extension of the Identity Matters podcast and also under the care of the Generational Ethics broadcast. You will see more and more of our new icon as we're bringing in on the Identity Matters worldview. And this worldview icon is for the purpose of very quickly displaying to people exactly what our mission is all about. So here's the one-liner basically about our mission. It is equipping generations with the mind of Christ. Now it would sound a little bit odd to you if I said our whole Christian ministry is about equipping generations through the mind of men. You would catch that right away, that there's something wrong with that statement. But saying equipping the generations through the mind of Christ has actually created more questions in listeners than answers. And that really is because that it is difficult to understand how you can actually change a generation through the mind of Christ when he's not here anymore. Now, if you are believing that he is not here because you cannot see him and touch him. You can't put your finger into his side. You can't look at the holes in his wrists and be able to say, oh, you're Jesus. Now, if you said this to someone back when he was walking the 40 days on earth, you would find this statement to be an acceptable statement because he's going to each of the cities or towns or villages that he initially visited to give them his own gospel and he went back to each one of those towns and villages to say here I am he created as you know 500 witnesses Because he understood by his ability to look into the future that a day shall come that a generation is going to be demanding evidence on the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of himself. So as we look back on true church history, We're going to find something, and if you're willing to do a little research outside of memorizing a couple Bible verses to get you through your day, it's called devotions. If you want to go a little deeper, start 
looking to the history that Christ laid out for the future. He literally handled that first generation in such a way that he was establishing precedent of history for the future. Now we can see from his ascension all the way to today these pieces being unfolded as evidence that demands a conclusion. So now we have a full-on generation that we're dealing with today that is demanding evidence of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And if you have a problem explaining that to a relative thinker, you don't know the history of Jesus Christ. Because he did specific things and created a certain numeric number of witnesses from a very intellectual community, a very normal community, and even poverty people. He took from each of the levels of society and made sure he showed up there to say, look, I'm here, but you saw me crucified because some of you were there mocking me. I am here. It's true. You heard about my birth and the problems there. You heard about my life growing up as a mere boy. You saw the death that I went through. You saw the hassle over the stone being blown away. And the lies that went around about someone stole me. But I'm here because I'm resurrected. You cannot have an exchange life of new life unless you experientially have the ability to embrace the exchange life. Not I, but Christ. So we take that and we bring that out in every aspect of ministry we possibly can. I actually sit back in my chair and sometimes I, I giggle with myself. Of course, the three of us remember, me, myself, and I. And of course, then I realize there's six in the room. It's me, myself, and I, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's quite a crowd of witnesses uh, on an average workday. But I sit there and I, I chuckle a little bit when I get a text or an email or something and someone says, are you ever going to get on with it, move on to another topic? No, I won't. You know, it's like an evangelist. You, If you sit under the leadership of an evangelist and some of my precious brothers in India particularly in, in Africa, continent of Africa, they're evangelists. They try to lead people to the Lord, whether they're buying, you know, bread or whether they're preaching in their churches. Everything's about evangelism. And a lot of times the listeners go, isn't he ever going to get on to something else? I want you to know, Pastor, I deeply appreciate you. I respect you. Because there's nothing more important than evangelism. 
You can't grow a dead man alive. And that's what's happening to the church today. We're not focusing on an entry point of salvation. We're growing people as if they're born-again believers. Grow with me in grace. Really? How's that working for the world? You can't grow anyone in grace until they get it. And they can't get it until they go through it. And you can't go through it until you're co-crucified. And you can't be co-crucified until you say, take my hands, nail them, take my feet, nail them, take this old life, this old nature, and crucify it. Because I need to get on the other side of this fence now. Then you can grow them in grace. Then the love of God has an actual effect and an effect on them. But until then, you're growing doorknobs. And that's why you're not seeing life-changing work in your ministries is because maybe you're not taking the time to evaluate. You're trying to train doorknobs to act like Christians. So we need to take a deeper look at the double-minded leaders of this generation. And we're going to start that tonight. Now we're not going to particularly go after the highest leader that we can find in the Christian community, which would be pastors or pastors who head entire denominations or ministries. We have to start on the lowest part of the ladder. Who would be on the lowest part of the ladder in dealing with Gen Z? Now, yes, you are correct that the Gen Zers are considering themselves their own leaders. That is true. But it is not God's modality. Now, there also is a piece of truth within our culture that this culture group believes that God will change his doctrines for the pluralist. They believe that. If you want to really truly understand if you are in the presence of a Christian who is pushing God to change his doctrines for them, listen to them pray. If they order God around like he's some kind of slot machine, they're confessing the evidence that God works for me. Thus, Jesus has to be a Democrat. Do you understand that statement? Democrats believe that leaders work for them. Is our system set up that way? Yes, it is. We the people. We can impeach a president. We can, we can reject him. We can do all kinds of stuff to the leadership of our country because we, the people, are ruling them. They answer to us. It is a democratic method of madness. A monarchy is not like that. 
There's very few of them left in the world. But a monarchy is not like democracy. If the king or queen says it, parliament has to support it, goes out into policy, and the people have to do it. Is God monarchy or is he democrat? He's monarchy. That's why the term in Hebrew and in the Greek is king of kings. You think that they just put that on the sign, stapled it to his cross because they came up with that original thought? No. He said he was the king of kings. It's a mockery statement. Jesus' verbiage is filled with monarchy. And this is what our society today is reacting to. Because the millennials in particular, as well as their children, Gen Z, do not like being told what to do like you're the king. And they're the peasants. But in reality of biblical absolutes, it is built upon a monarchy system. It is not built on a democratic system. So I'm telling you this because you need to understand what our young people are faced with today. They live in a democracy. They live in a country where free speech to ruin people, to hurt authority figures, to talk them down, talking points, to sell them new ideas, is the rights of the people. You should have compassion now for Gen Z. You should be able to look at the pressures they're under because the governmental society of itself supports what they're doing. It's a right that they have. It is not going to work anymore in a absolute truth, kingdom of God, king of kings, modality in a democracy that has gone wild, where we shoot at our president, we try to embarrass our president, we drag his laundry out of the closet, and, 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 and the honor of monarchy is now in church history. It was amazing that it survived as long as it did. A monarchy, absolute system of God survived as long as it did in America. And as my friend, who is listening right now, understands that the time period in which America has survived is absolutely nothing, even compared to Europe's history. Europe's history is nothing compared to the history of the Middle East. The Middle East is nothing compared to the history of the Egyptians. The Egyptians is nothing compared to the original Babylon. So when David Kinnaman makes a quote like, We are living in a digital Babylon, which I'm going to have you listen to a three-minute podcast here on that idea. 
you'll have a little bit of a background in understanding a very simple war that is going on, and that is monarchy is rubbing up against a democrat system that has now become a religion. So when you ask an average American if they're Christian, as you learned in the Gen Z conference, 75% of the Americans say they are Christians. Because the nation and democracy of this country is equal with Christian. So the ramifications of that kind of thinking is that 75%, which the percentage is much higher, I can assure you, they tell me always add 10% onto the percentages because it's impossible to survey everyone. So 75% of Americans believe that they are Christian because the culture and governance supports it. Therefore, Jesus is a Democrat. He works for us. If you can't follow that logic, you can text me at 602-292-2982. It is childlike logic. You should be able to see it very quickly, but I understand how a deceived mind works. You hear truth, but by the time it gets through both ears, it has to go through a pluralistic filter. It also has to go to one layer deeper, and that one layer deeper is called, I am God, you are not, Mr. Speaker. I am my own leader, Mr. Speaker. I am, I am, and I hope you're not too shocked about a godological conclusion of this. But the godological conclusion is your confessions are monarchy. Now, if you can't connect those two dots, you are in serious trouble. If you can't see the spance of this historically proven war that has gone on between monarchy and democracy and how it moved its way and massaged its way into a cultural issue we're dealing with today, then you really are in sad shape. This is simple ethics. It's generational ethics. It is very simple theology. Theo is God. Now, atheo is there is no God. And atheo puts itself in its final little pigeonhole. I believe in monarchy. I am God. And that's monarchy. I'm just unfolding, unwrapping, and showing you a very simple technique the enemy does to a culture, a nation. But I know personally myself how to live in a democratic society as a monarchy thinker. It can be done. There are millions of people who are doing it.
without going, I am God, you are not. Don't push your stuff and your Bible on me because I have my own Bible. I'm in the process of writing it. It's called self-thought. Here's our three objectives. We're going to finish up some final details on atheism, which I think we have done a pretty good job explaining the difference between atheism and theoism. And we also talked about the setup for the conclusion for tonight, and that is atheists truly are monarchy. They are king of kings themselves. It's not democratic, which is what their social networks say, is really not true. They're just saying, I don't believe in the primary theo. And so I will show you some of the ramifications of that. And then a double-minded generation, we're going to kick that in. It's going to go on for several weeks. And then finally, the faithless, a faithless society. And here's our little key point we've got to re- remember as we go through this. Since worldview is birthed through the mind of the one holding the beliefs, adjusting the global beliefs will ultimately change the worldview of the society. Instead of blaming the millennials, we must put the responsibility on those who are adjusting global standards. Now this piece I'm going to throw at you might mess a little bit with your mind because you might not think in prophetic terms. The Bible is filled with prophecy. It's not just the major prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, if you read his stuff very carefully, almost everything he said had prophetic overtones. He was setting us up. He was saying it so it could be said, so that it can be used as evidence in a proper way when it begins to unfold. So when we look at these global standards, when we think about the ideology of what I was talking about in regard to democracy, when we think about the idea of self-will, God gave us a free will, and all these things that people are using to say, I have my own rights to think the way I want to think, stinky or not. Now here's the craziness. Now if you are a quote-unquote Christian and you don't do much studying of the book of Revelation or book of Ezekiel, you're not going to get what I'm going to tell you. So you'll probably have to do a little more research after this. But here is the simple timeline of global standards coming your way. It all started in a place called heaven. There was a key leader. He was an archangel in charge of one-third of all the entire angels that were in heaven. We have no idea what that number is, but I'll bet it's higher than you can count. An unbelievable amount of 
host, heavenly host, he was responsible for. We're talking a full-on, full-blown leader. And he kind of got puffed up about that, so he decided to take the throne chair away from God the Father. And he attempted to do this, and he was removed from heaven like a bolt of lightning. There was not, believe me, there was not 40 hours of discipleship for Satan. He didn't send him to 12-step groups. He didn't send him to anger management. Any of these ideas to try to help someone. He was removed from heaven like a bolt of lightning. That's how much of a threat he was. So I got a feeling he was packed with power. So he gets put on a formless planet. And if formless, if you look it up there in the Hebrew... It means ashes, dust. Nothing's on it. It's not a planet with evidence of water. It became his prison cell. He was bound to the earth and he could not leave it. Now to add to the torture and consequences for this leader gone wild, God decides to breathe life into it. From water on the planet, from plant life to animal life, you know the story. Unless you want to stop and sing Noah's little ark. (laughs) He brought life out of ashes, but not to Satan. In fact, it tantalized him, it tortured him. So he makes this decision to try to bring one of God's special created beings, Adam and Eve, and bring them down. And guess what happened? It worked. There's a one-line statement that he used that sealed the deal. You, too, can be like God. Why make worldview more difficult than that? Satan was brilliant, but he used stupidity to catch people. So here we have it. This leader now decides to take over these people and their societies. And that got so bad after 926 years, whatever it is, before the flood happened, that every culture and society that was formed from the descendants of these like-God couple that started the whole mess literally turned and imploded the entire world, whatever the world was at that time. It became so incredibly depraved that God knew he was going to have to wash it away. And there was only one One family that was given the privilege and honor to be on that boat. But didn't the flood destroy Satan? I'm afraid he knows how to swim. It did not affect him. It did not affect the demons. But it did affect 
the beast of the field, the plant life, and the people that were heavily influenced by Satan. So from that day forward, he moved into all the societies he possibly could through a thing called the system of Babylon. Babylon is in your neighborhood. Any good researcher or writer or people that do their homework, like David Kinnaman, unbelievable book out on this, and they can quickly see that Babylon has not gone away. And it is here to stay. So therefore, I carefully study what Babylon looked like then and today and bring them until they meet in the middle. So now we have a stupid enemy who's extremely powerful continuing to work his simple goal of you can be as God. He's going to work that all the way through until he stands before the living God. Yes, he too will stand before the living God. And guess what he's forced to do? Now remember, he's a pluralist. He's the God of pluralism. And what is he forced to do? Bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord means ownership in the Hebrew and the Greek. You're owned. I own you. And what's the one thing that every nation and the entire world fights to the day, to this very day? It's having someone own you. Monarchy. Democracy is opposite of that. Nobody owns me. I own myself. Yes, you too can vote for me for president. See, that'll never happen. The system is upside down. And so is the church. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at IOMAmerica.org. That's IOMAmerica.org.